So many of you know that before uh, I did full-time ministry, I was in the corporate world for a few years. Uh, and, <clears throat> and obviously some of you are still, not still, are in the corporate world. <laughs> um, I don't know if you, this is something that you also do not look forward to, but something that I do not look forward to uh, when I was still in the corporate world uh, was performance reviews. Performance reviews. Um, I, I don't necessarily get excited when there are monthly uh, performance evaluations of my work yeah. or quarterly evaluations, uh, sometimes even yearly evaluation. Um, it's not something I look forward to, but I hope that, you know, it will yield some, you know, uh, some compensation, stuff like that, or yun yung magiging basis of your, the bonuses that you have, or the opposite will, <laughs> will happen that you, you know, you will get rep either reprimanded or, you know, th things will happen in, uh, in your job that you do not like. So when I uh, entered full-time ministry, I thought that part of my life, uh, would be something that I will that will no longer happen in performance reviews, but to my surprise, there are still performance reviews and and, and church evaluations that happen in a church. Um, so I present some monthly reports, a monthly church reports. I do some quarterly reports. Part of part of my role as a uh, as a pastor, to, to make that report to, uh, to the council, and sometimes annual reports. Um, of course, that, that is uh, done to indicate, or to at least have an idea of what's going on in the church, if you're still a, you know, um, you, you know uh, it's still a healthy church in that sense, and you know, there are times, there are times, and, and Elder uh, Joey is here and we've experienced this, uh, there are times that we go on a retreat, like a two days, one night uh, retreat just to go through, you know, what's going on in, in the church, what's the, what's the situation of the church. So uh, there will be some SWOT analysis happening, very business-like, no, <laughs> your approach. Uh, are you familiar with the SWOT analysis, like strengths, weaknesses? opportunities and threats. So we talk about that and yung mga nangyayari in the church. We formulate a mission vision statement in the church. Uh, and then towards the end, we, we come together and, uh, and make a 12-year a uh, action plan uh, to, you know, to, uh, to implement in the church. Um, sometimes it happens, sometimes it doesn't. And so, these evaluations in the church, seemingly very business-like, um, I would say is not necessarily bad because it helps, you know, have a self-evaluation of the situation in the church. But it's, that's what it is. It's a self-evaluation. You're trying to assess the life and the condition of the church from your perspective, right? 
sometimes it helps if you have an outsider's perspective and that's where some surveys can come in and uh, and talk about you know uh, how they view your church from an outsider again those are limited uh, ways to understand the true condition of the church what's missing there what's missing is we do not know for sure what God thinks about the church. And so we, and we do all these things because we want to know, we are desperate to know the true condition of the organization that we belong to, even, even if it is a religious organization. Especially in churches, we are desperate to know if we are really a healthy church. And Revelation chapter 2 and 3 sort of functions as a perfect evaluation of the seven churches uh, that were identified in this book. So the seven churches are Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira or Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So these are actual historical churches in the first century. They have specific issues in their particular time. But these letters also have a universal uh, message, an aspect to it, in a sense that it still speaks to us today. It is a message for us, to the modern church uh, today. And that's why we are going to go through uh, each of these uh, letters uh, to, uh, to these churches in, in the coming Sundays. But unlike the other letters that we see in, in the New Testament, we just went through uh, uh, the letter of Paul to Galatians. Unlike all those letters, uh, Peter and, and Paul's letter, this short of letter within this apocalyptic and prophetic book is coming from Jesus himself. It's coming from Jesus himself. This is coming from the resurrected, glorified triumphant Jesus addressing these churches directly. And what these seven letters will indicate to us is that God knows the true condition of the church. God knows the true condition of these churches that even in intense Overnight church evaluations will not be able to see. Because whatever Jesus says to each of these seven churches is the real condition of the church. Now keep that in mind. Whatever Jesus says to these churches is the real, true condition of the church. But he's not just giving them an evaluation or a performance review. He's not just an evaluator. He's the head of the church. That's why he's not just giving some feedback. He's already also giving them a call to action and some encouraging words. And we start with this letter with Ephesus. We start with this letter uh, in, in Ephesus. So the Lord's letter to Ephesus should serve a as a reminder for any church, for them and for us today, to keep the main thing, the main thing. What is that main thing? 
that those he saves are his delight. The song that we sang earlier. That the Lord holds us fast because the Lord loves us so. I hope that's something that we will take from, from uh, this letter. That the main thing is our affection towards the Lord and his affection towards us. So we'll look at this letter. And we will appreciate this letter better if we understand some of the context, some of the background happening in, in this particular letter. And, and hopefully as we go through this, it will make more sense. Obviously, in, in these seven letters, Ephesus is one of the places that we are familiar with, right? We, are, we have heard of that place before, right? Whether historically or biblically. So Ephesus is a, a port city. It is a city with its port in the west coast of Asia Minor, which is a modern, the modern-day Turkey. It was, a, at, even at that time, a very populated city in the first century. The market trade happens on a regular basis. It is both a secular place and a religious place. Because it's a port city, it attracts a lot of people also from different cultures uh, in the Roman world. So think about, think about New York. Think about Singapore. It's a thriving melting pot of people, which includes Jewish communities. There are a bunch of Jewish communities in Ephesus. So this is a big city in, in relatively in that time. Uh, Ephesus has a, even have a, they have a big theater that can sit about 24,000. They have a capacity for a mega church, you know. They can do that because there's a big facility for that. So they really go big. And speaking of big, they have, uh, in Ephesus, you can see uh, the temple of Artemis. The temple of Artemis. Uh, Artemis uh, is the goddess uh, for, for hunting, for fertility, and for life. And uh, historians consider the temple of Artemis as part of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It's a big temple. People who worship Artemis, they go to Ephesus to, to give respects and worship uh, this goddess. And because Artemis is a goddess of fertility and life, there are small you know, uh, idols being sold in the market at that time and sometimes even now. That means, because he's the goddess, she's the goddess of fertility and life, part of the religious activity are sexual acts. There are male and female prostitutes in the temple, and that's part of their worship. But aside from the temple of Artemis, there's another temple that you can see in Ephesus. Uh, it's a temple of Domitian, who is this... Domitian. Well, Domitian is a, a, the, the emperor, a Roman emperor, who, aside from Nero, was ruthless in coming after Christians. Right? But also, this Domitian has 
big dreams and big ego of himself. He wants to be worshipped as a god, as many emperors would think. And so he created this festivity for Roman citizens in the Roman towns like Ephesus to make a public profession that Caesar, that's the term for their emperor, Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord. And that should create some problems for Christians who profess that Jesus Christ alone is Lord, right? So there will be challenge for, for that. And because of that, this emperor led one of the most brutal persecutions of Christians. That's the setting of you know, what's going on in, in that city. But from, you know, from a biblical perspective, we know Ephesus because we see that, that in the Bible. Um, we know that Apollos, an eloquent preacher, went and spoke in Ephesus. We see that in Acts 18. And then a couple named Priscilla and Aquila, uh, Paul's ministry partners, met Apollos there. So there are a, a, a number of uh, Christians in that, uh, in that city. We know in Acts 19, Apostle Paul went to Ephesus and proclaimed the gospel there. Many miraculous signs happened. Many conversions happened. Even a riot ensued. There was a riot that happened in, uh, in Ephesus because Paul was preaching uh, about the gospel and it's affecting the business of uh, temple worship. So it disrupted the business of uh, idol makers. And we also know that Paul wrote a letter to Ephesians. I think last year we went through that letter. And he did this not while we, he was in, uh, in Ephesus. He did this, he wrote this letter while he was in prison. And while he was in prison, he also uh, commissioned Timothy to, to, uh, to become a pastor of Ephesus, right? And scholars even tell us that John, the writer of the book that we're studying now, wrote the gospel account, the gospel of John, and his letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, while he was in Ephesus. So, you know, the city over the course of its life did not lack any supply of faithful ministry workers. They had Apostle, uh, Apollos, Priscilla, Aquila, Paul, Timothy, John, and maybe Luke. Maybe he, uh, Luke, when he wrote uh, his gospel and accounts and acts, he probably went through Ephesus as well. You could even say that Ephesus, even though it was a highly a secular place, it was a strategic location for Christian ministry. It was a, an urban city center where Christianity can be strategically placed. I would say much like Metro Manila or New York or Singapore or Kuala Lumpur or Tokyo. So Paul has... Uh, no, Jesus has a message for this church. And we start with the Lord's commendation for them. 
And we can see that the Lord really commends this church. He really commends this church. Number one, first commendation is that they performed hard work, the hard work of faith. They performed the hard work of faith. Verse 2 says, I know your works. The Lord sees it. You don't have to do church evaluation. Jesus knows it. I know your works, your toil. Toil, ang ginamit na word. And your patience, patient endurance. Friends, keep in mind that this is not a young church. This is not a young church. From the time that Apollos went there to preach to the Jewish communities that Jesus is the Messiah, to Paul, including Ephesus in his missionary journey, to Timothy eventually pastoring the church, to the Apostle John who's at this time elderly, already an, like advanced in his age, the time elapsed during that period is approximately 40 years. This is an old church. 40 years already. The church, as Jesus uh, speaks to them, this church has been laboring, toiling, for 40 years in a place where Christianity is not necessarily welcome. Can you think of churches here in the Philippines that did not die, stagnate, deteriorate over the course of 40 years? Don't shout the names. <laughs> Don't shout the names. I can think of some, and I will not mention them. We thank the Lord that the, the Lord has, has sustained these churches. It did not change. They, they worked hard for 40 years. They, did, they performed the good work of faith. They worked hard for it. There are many, many uh, churches like that, but at least just for comparison, I'll... I'll mention our, our network of churches. You know, Breadcomb Church was started, um, it, it started in Mandaluyong about 24 years ago. It's about 24 years. So still comparatively young <laughs> than Ephesus, 24 years. And from that period, we have other churches. So from Mandaluyong, another church was planted in Marikina, then Pasig, then Kaluokan, Quezon City, Kainta, Montalban, and there are two other churches coming from that in BGC and here in Makati. During that period, there have been so many changes along the way. I've seen leaders come and go We've, we praise the Lord and we grieve for those who uh, went home before us. Actually, today, I think, is one of the ministry workers in Breadcom, two years ago, went home to be with the Lord, si Atileti. Two years today, I, I believe. So people come and go. A lot of things have changed in, 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 in this network of churches. But by God's grace, these churches are still here. These churches are not big, but they are here. And I would say that's commendable, right? That's very commendable. 
Amazing, right? But that happened in an environment where Christianity is welcome. These churches, including ours, flourish in an environment where Christianity is welcome. Ephesus stayed unchanged, undeterred, in the midst of persecution. And that's something that's even more commendable. That they did the hard work, they performed the hard work of faith where Christianity is not necessarily welcome. That's something that's very commendable for them. And, and secondly, aside from performing the hard work of faith, they persevered patiently. Verse 3 says, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and have not grown weary. So people are enduring, but they are complaining. Ephesus is enduring, but they are not growing weary. As we see in its uh, you know, economic and, and uh, historical and cultural context, it was difficult to be a Christian in Ephesus. If you are an efficient citizen who used to worship in the temple of Artemis, and now you're a Christian, you no longer do that. You no longer worship in the temple of Artemis. But that has implication in your social and economic life. For one, the agora, where people gather, the marketplace, is near the temple. Just like when you go out, there's a marketplace outside, right? Imagine like that beside the temple of Artemis. And people go there because, you know, you know people are, are there. They can make some trades and everything. And when they do that, when you enter the Agora, you have to pay respects to Artemis. And so because you no longer worship Artemis, you will no longer enter that facility. So that will, that will change the way you do market. <laughs> you will have to figure out a way to continue to live your life without compromising your Christian faith. If you're an efficient citizen who became a Christian, your values now will change. You value exclusive intimacy with your spouse and for a society where sexual acts are part of their temple worship if you're practicing marital faithfulness you're considered an outlier you're considered weird and and paul talks about that right he he, he talks about uh, his letter to to ephesus about how husbands should love their wives and wives should submit to, to their husband. And if you notice in, in that letter, Paul says, wives submit to your husband. Paul has to make that distinction because in that society, everything goes. 
Also, if you're a Christian businessman in Ephesus and you employ some bond servants, so the way you treat them will be very different. You will no longer be ruthless. You will no longer be cruel. You will see them for, for as, as God's image bearers. That may mean you will lose business. And so this affects every Christian who are in Ephesus. But for these believers, bearing up the name of Jesus is more important to them. Bearing up the name of Jesus is more important to them than compromising their Christian faith in that society. And Jesus commends them of that. Friends, it's very commendable when we don't com compromise our Christian faith just to fit in. That will obviously affect the way we live our lives. That will obviously mean we will be considered weird, old-fashioned, traditional, bigot, but that's a consequence of persevering in our Christian walk. And Jesus commends those Christians who are doing that. But here's a very commendable thing, the third commendable thing for this uh, church in Ephesus. The third commendable thing is that they preserve true gospel teaching. They preserve true gospel teaching. This is a congregation where doctrinal purity is preserved. Verse 2, again, the second part of verse 2 says, You test those who call themselves apostles, but are really not. They are, they, you found them to be false. Verse 6, let me jump in verse 6. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So you see that, you know, this church not only survives the persecution externally, they also weed out and survive the false teachings from within. They have attacks externally, they, they persevere through that, but they also preserve uh, faithful doctrinal teaching and they weed out false teachings from within. So on one end, they expose those who claim to be apostles, but they're actually not. And we know that all the apostles are of Jewish descent. Historians even call them Galileans. By the way, when historians call them Galileans, that's a, in a way, that's an insult. The, the historians are calling them Provinciano. <laughs> so all the apostles, even, even Paul, even though he's a Roman citizen, is of Jewish descent. So all the apostles uh, come from a Jewish background. So when... When these efficient believers uh, look at uh, uh, those who call themselves apostles, most likely these 
uh, so-called apostles are Judaizers. And we talked about that when we went through Galatians. Those who uh, falsely teach that one must be a Jew to truly be a Christian. So it seems like this church in Ephesus was successful in handling that false teaching. They can weed out you know, false apostles, right? But on the other end, they also reject false teaching, uh, for the false teachings of the Nicolaitans. Who are these people? <laughs> well, although these people are not exactly clear to us, it's a mystery to us, it's not a mystery to the first century believers. They know who they are. But the scholars tell us, uh, based on many evidences, that the Nicolaitans are people that promote a heresy that combines you know, Christian teaching and Greek paganism. They are combining Christian teaching and Greek paganism, and the result is a life that is very liberal, that disregards holy living. So you have, you know, they, they, pro they protect the church from uh, the Judaizers. They protect the church from the Nicolaitans. So you know, typically, a church will lean towards either of these false teaching, right? Either, you know, the church will become legalistic because of the Judaizers, or they will become liberal because of the Nicolaitans. And it's very commendable that this church in Ephesus was able to preserve the doctrinal unity of the church by rejecting both. Amazing. They can smell false teaching from a mile away. And they can shout heresy. They can do that. And often they are right. Amazing. So they perform the hard work of faith. They preserve, uh, persevere patiently. They preserve true gospel teaching. What an amazing, commendable church. And Jesus commends them. Don't you think this is a good church? <laughs> this is a good church. It seems like they are the gold standard by which all churches should be measured. They have amazing things happening for them. If there is an Ephesus type of church today, and I'm sure there are, it would be a church where unchurched people and church hoppers would want to be a member of. It would be a church where people just flock because, wow, they persevere. They do the hard work. They preserve the doctrinal uh, purity of, of Christian teaching. If there's an Ephesus type of church today, it would be a church where other Christian organizations would go and ask, can you teach us how to be successful like you? How to be you? <laughs> can you start a conference so we could learn your programs and practices so we can copy that and bring what you're doing to our church? Because we're not as commendable as you. 
If you are in this church, you're proud to be in this church. Who wouldn't want to be in this church? Would you want to be in this church? <laughs> Raise your hand if you want to be in a church where they, where they do a good heart, they perform a hard work of faith, they persevere despite persecution, and they preserve doctrinal purity. Would you like that? I would want to be in, in that church. Obviously. And Jesus commends them. Make no mistake, this is a commendable thing. But, <laughs> here's the plot twist. We hear the Lord's criticism against them. It's just one. Just one. One against three. But this one should break the heart of every Christian. What's the Lord's criticism? I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. What does that look like? What does that look like? You know, some uh, commentators who are a lot smarter than I am describe what's happening in this church in this way. Let me quote. One commentator said, their warmth of love had given place to a lifeless orthodoxy. Their warmth of love had given place to a lifeless orthodoxy. Here's another description. The ability of the church to detect doctrinal deviation had created a climate of suspicion. Love was noticeably absent among its members. You know what that sounds like for me? It sounds like a dutiful wife, a dutiful bride who no longer loves her husband. It's a faithful wife who does not look to his husband in the eye. She will still fulfill what is expected of her, but she is just going through the motions. It is a church on maintenance mode. How can this happen in a church that seems to be a gold standard for churches? How can this happen in a church where all of us would want to be part of? How can this happen to a church that rejects you know, things that will crumble the church? How can this happen? I have an idea. You know, sometimes what we think is our strength could actually be our downfall. And it seems like doctrinal purity has become their idol. Doctrinal purity has become their idol. Friends, don't get me wrong. Doctrinal purity is not a bad thing. It is a good thing. And I believe all churches must aspire to be clear on what we believe and stand firm in it. We want to pursue it. We need it. But you know what? 
the most deceptive forms of idols are those we consider good things. Good things becoming the ultimate thing. And it looks like what they consider to be their strength over the course of 40 years has become an idol. Doctrinal purity becomes an idol when our ultimate hope and joy is anchored on our level of theolo theological rightness. At worst, it manifests in being overly suspicious of other Christians and lack of compassion towards unbelievers. Again, let me clarify, this is not about you know, feelings versus intellect. The Lord is not confronting them because their worship is less emotional. The Lord is not confronting them because they're not raising their hands or they're not crying or there's no altar call happening in the church. The Lord is not calling them out just for being less emotional. The Lord is calling them out because they abandoned their first love. They abandoned their first love because something else took its place. And in this case, it was doctrinal purity. And it's sad to see a church that's pursuing a good thing, pursuing doctrinal purity, but is detached from true affections in the Lord. You know, friends, what this tells us is that a church can be so theologically informed, yet their hearts are far away from God. You know, the efficient church, commendable as they are, may not be worshiping Artemis or Caesar, but it seems like they have given their hearts to an idol in their own making. They have made an idol out of a good thing. And so Jesus gives this warning. I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. What does that mean? Well, in other words, you will stop becoming a church. You will stop becoming a church. If you are no longer a light that declares the excellencies of God, who has called us from darkness to light, then there's no use of calling you a church. So they do not stop becoming Christians. By the way, they don't, be, they don't, Jesus will not remove, you know, their, their salvation from them. They just stop existing as a church. That's what it means to remove the lampstand. And I think in our modern times, that has happened. Did I ask you earlier, can you think of churches in over 40 years that has sustained over 40 years? It has happened. God has removed their lampstand. They stopped becoming a church. 
But you know what? Normally, we think, when we think of God, you know, closing down a church, we imagine a church that's propagating false teaching, right? We're imagining a church that's entangled with scandals. But it seems like those who are entangled with scandals continue. <laughs> and those who are propagating false teaching, they are even growing. What's going on? That's what we think when, when, we, when we imagine a church, uh, when, imagine, when we imagine God removing uh, the lampstand, meaning removing uh, its identity as a church. I just find it interesting that the Lord would, want, would warn to take out a theologically robust church. That's a stern warning, right? But I believe Ephesus is not a lost cause. Because a truly theologically faithful church would have a good understanding of repentance. A true theological church will have a good understanding of repentance. And that's a call to action for Ephesus. Jesus calls them to repent. He mentions it twice. And that was reinforced by the words, remember and doing the works you did at first. So just for, easy, for so we can remember easily. It's repent, so you'll remember and return. So all are. But what are they to repent from? What, they should, what, what should they repent from? Should they repent from their coldness? Lord, sorry we're not raising our hands. Should they repent from their coldness towards each other? Lord, forgive me because I did not say hello to my, my brother or sister. Should they repent from their theological pride? Should they repent from their lack of emotions? Sure, sure, they could and should repent from those. But that would mean they are merely repenting from their bad behavior, but not the root cause of those behaviors. Jesus is calling them to repent at the heart level. You see, we are accustomed to repenting from the bad things we have done, right? What Jesus called to them, Jesus' call to true repentance is deeper than that. He is calling them to repent from making a good thing the ultimate thing. And that means repenting from good things as well. In essence, that means you're saying, Lord, I repent from the bad things I have done. I repent from my coldness. I repent from my smugness. I repent from my, my emotionless. But I also repent from trusting the good things in my life to be the source of my salvation. You know, just like Ephesus, when we have fallen into an idol of our own making, we need to repent 
from a seemingly good thing that has taken the place of God in our hearts. We say, Lord, forgive me because I thought that when I do this good thing, we're good. That as long as my hold of this good thing is secure, then my salvation with you is secure. Forgive me for trusting a good thing and have, that has taken place in our, th that has taken the place of you in my heart. What will help us in this process of repentance? Jesus calls for the efficient believers to remember and return to do the things that they did at first. So there's a mental and physical aspect to this, to remember mental and to return, physical. You know, in most weddings I officiate, I tell the bride and groom before they give their vows, I mention that they remember the vows that they will profess today. Please remember the vows that you will profess today because there will come a time that marriage is going to be difficult and the, the bride you think that was so beautiful will look like a monster. <laughs> and you will forget the vows that, you, that, you, that you've made. So please remember the vows. You will, remember, you will forget the beautiful day that you got married. But more than that, I want them to remember the love that binds them together. And there's a beautiful demonstration of that in a candle ceremony. And so, and so a related image that comes to mind as we think of things that will help us uh, process repentance is that of a marriage renewal. Marriage renewal. Uh, some couples, after a few years, maybe 10, 25, or 50 years, will you know, renew their vows, right? They will recreate the, their, the weddings that they have, the, the, the wedding ceremony that they have uh, made. How does that happen in a church? Should we do a marriage renewal as a church? How can we do that? Well, for me, every time we partake of the Lord's Supper, it's a process of renewal. Because as we look at the sacraments, as we partake of the sacraments, I remember what Christ has done for me on the cross. And I return to trusting Him for my salvation. I return to trusting that the blood of Christ was poured out for the forgiveness of my sin. I return to the fact that his body was crucified to atone for my sin. And every time we gather on the Lord's day, it's also a means of renewal for me. That's why we have a confession of sin as part of our worship service. I need it. We need it. Because as we end the worship service noontime, 
Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, I am more susceptible to forget and abandon the love I had at first. So I need the Lord's Day, I need Sunday to remind me of this love. But finally, the comfort. What comfort does Jesus give to this church? And Jesus gives this exhortation, this encouragement to all seven churches, to the one who conquers. He says that to all of them. And he makes this promise to all of them. He gives them different variations of this promise. It probably means the same thing, but it has, you know, he elaborates especially to each of these churches. In this case, he tells the efficient believers, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. What's the significance of that to Ephesus and hopefully to us today? Well, remember again, in, in Ephesus, you see a temple of Artemis and Artemis is a a deity, a pagan deity that uh, people come to for fruitfulness, for fertility, for life. And so efficient Christians who no longer go to Artemis they may feel that they no longer have access to fruitfulness. Or to life. That could have contributed to them becoming cold. Because before they go to the temple, uh, they hope that you know by worshiping Artemis, they will experience fruitfulness in life, fertility, and 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 you know life, uh, fruit-bearing life. They no longer do that, so. It might mean that they no longer have access to fruitfulness. Jesus' encouragement to them, remain faithful until, until the end because true fruit, fruitfulness is found not in the temple of Artemis nor in the artificial walls you have created. True fruitfulness and life is found in the place that God has prepared. Paradise. If you think Artemis and the Agora are paradise, wait till you see the paradise that God has prepared for you. It's not just a paradise. It's not just a beautiful place, although it is, but it signifies a restored relationship with God. And at the center of that is not Artemis. At the center of that is a life-giving tree that is received purely by God's grace. That's comforting for, for believers in Ephesus. What will Cornerstone Reformed Church Makati look like in 40 years? Can you imagine that with me? What will that look like? Probably half or more of us will no longer be here for whatever circumstances. We will probably not meeting here anymore if the Lord will not return within four, uh, in, in 40 years. 
who will be the leaders of this church? What are we passionate about? Honestly, I don't know what that will look like. I have, I have pictures of, in my mind of, you know, seeing William and Emma, you know, they're, they're continuing what we've started here. And some of our younger people are no longer young people. <laughs> they're the older people now. Imagine that's 40 years, right? I'm probably not here anymore. <laughs> I don't know what that will look like. And I was talking about, you know, church evaluations. It was difficult because you're, you're measuring something that you don't have control over. You're trying to measure some things that you do not have control over. But here's what I know. Here's what our text says. Verse 1, to the words of him who holds the seven stars, seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And we know that the golden lampstands are the churches. Here's what I know. The one who holds his church walks along with his church. The one who holds this church, who holds us fast, knows the true condition of this church. He is with us by his spirit. He knows the condition of this church both now and 40 years from now. I may not know the true condition of your heart today. You can tell me you're okay and I'll believe you. But the Lord of this church knows you more than you know yourself. The Lord of this church loves you more than you can ever imagine. He holds us fast for the Savior loves us so. He holds us fast. And in another letter of John, which he wrote in Ephesus, he says in 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. When time comes, you know, we're, we're faulty, we're, we're flawed people. When the time comes, when we are confronted that we have abandoned our first love, may the Lord be merciful to us that that will not happen. But if that happens, we can repent and return and remember to the, the God who loved us first. Let's pray. Our gracious, loving, heavenly Father, we come before you as a young church. We look at the, the church in Ephesus and we thank you that you have sustained them. We thank you that you walk within these churches. And we pray, Lord God, that as you have sustained these churches, that you will sustain us as well. Lord, we are... We are not for a 40-year church. We are a fairly new church. We are a young church. But we are also susceptible to forget the love, the, our first love. And so teach us, Lord God, to always remember 
how you have called us. You have called us by your grace. Teach us to remember that our hope and joy and comfort is not anchored on what we think and what we believe to be true only in our heads, but it is anchored on the unchanging love of our Savior towards us. Lord, when we grow cold, teach us to repent. Teach us to remember. Teach us to return. And I pray, Lord, that we will experience the warmth of love of our Savior within our midst and those who have those you have placed in our community. Lord, have mercy upon us and that you may be glorified in this church. In Jesus' name, amen.